Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. Uh, we have a couple of anniversaries. On January 23rd, 1368, Chinese rebel leader Zhu Yuanzhang was crowned Hongwu Emperor. Uh, Zhu, also known as the Emperor Taizu, uh, emerged as the leading figure in the very multifactional Red Turban Rebellion against the Mongolian Yuan Dynasty that began in the 1350s. His coronation marks the start of the Ming Dynasty, which ruled China until the mid-17th century. On January 23, 1963, fighters with the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, or PAIGC, attacked Portuguese forces in the Tite region, kicking off the almost 12-year Guinea-Bissau War of Independence. Badly outgunned, the rebels were able to use the terrain to their advantage and arm themselves with weapons taken from defeated colonial soldiers. They won the war by simply outlasting the Portuguese, and when the National Salvation Junta came to power in Lisbon after the 1974 Carnation Revolution, it began negotiations with the party that ultimately led to Guinea-Bissau's independence in September of that year. The party also negotiated the independence of Cape Verde from Portugal the following year. Moving on to the news in the Middle East and Israel-Palestine, the Israeli military IDF said on Tuesday that its troops had over the previous day, quote, carried out an extensive operation during which they encircled Khan Yunus and deepened the operation in the area, end quote. This involved, and here's another quote, the elimination of dozens of terrorists, end quote, also according to the IDF statement. They definitely killed dozens of people anyway. Uh, after having advised Gazan civilians weeks ago to evacuate Gaza City and to go to Khan Yunus for, uh, I guess you could say, safety, the IDF is now doing to the latter what it previously did to the former. Many civilians have since moved further further south to Rafa, if the IDF decides it's time to destroy that city, it's unclear where the civilians will be able to go from there. Uh, the IDF lost 24 soldiers in two incidents on Monday, making that the single deadliest day for, uh, or the deadliest single day, I guess would be the better way to put that, for Israeli soldiers since the October 7th militant attacks in southern Israel. In the larger of the two incidents, mil militants fired an RPG at a group of IDF reservists who were apparently setting explosives to demolish two buildings near the Gaza security barrier. The weapon fire caused the explosives to detonate prematurely, killing 21 soldiers. The shock of the incident, which put the overall IDF death toll in this operation up over 200, which is admittedly a small fraction of the 25,000 plus deaths the IDF has inflicted on Gaza's population, may raise new concerns among Israelis about the course of this military operation. Uh, in other items, uh, I think it might be worth taking stock of that uh, RPG incident. First of all, the Israeli government acknowledged that the reservists were demolishing those buildings as part of a plan to create an unpopulated buffer zone inside Gaza. This is distinct from past demolitions, which Israeli officials have justified with some reference to Hamas tunnels, militant hideouts, etc., created uh, the creation of uh, the buffer zone is at best a questionable act under international law, which takes a fairly hard line against the destruction of civilian buildings in occupied territories, unless absolutely nece deemed necessary. Uh, it, it also directly contravenes one of the Biden administration's supposed key elements for this conflict, specifically the one about there being no loss of territory in post-war Gaza. Uh, and ethical considerations aside, undertaking an operation like this in what was clearly an insecure location is just stupid. International law is essentially meaningless, and you can be pretty sure that the Biden 
administration isn't going to stand up even for its own stated principles. But the incompetence shown here may be as shocking to the Israeli public as the loss of life. Israeli media, citing Egyptian sources, uh, reported on Tuesday that Hamas has rejected the Israeli government's offer of a two-month ceasefire, which we talked about in yesterday's newsletter. Uh, The two months was seemingly no option to extend beyond that, uh, which would have gone along with a prisoner exchange. Uh, I am not privy, of course, to Benjamin Netanyahu's innermost thoughts, thankfully, but I think given his track record, it's reasonable to conclude or at least consider the possibility that this is the outcome he wanted. Netanyahu has evinced little real concern for the fate of the remaining Israeli hostages, but he's under domestic pressure to secure their release and international pressure to mitigate the overwhelming amount of death and suffering his military is inflicting in Gaza. His offer here probably seems reasonable enough to most outside observers, but it falls short of Hamas demands for an indefinite ceasefire and an all-for-all prisoner exchange. So there was good reason to assume that it would be rejected, but in a way that allows Netanyahu to say to the Israeli public and the international community that he gave diplomacy a good faith try and Hamas spat it back in his face, this could buy him at least a brief respite from that aforementioned pressure. Uh, All may not be lost on this front, however. Uh, The Biden administration uh, sent its top Middle East expert, and I put that in quotes, uh, of course, Brett McGurk. Uh, He is still in the region trying to work on this hostage deal. Uh, After all the hostages have already suffered, I'm not sure why the administration would want to compound their situation by putting their fates in McGurk's extraordinarily incapable hands, but I digress. Uh, Leaving him aside, uh, Reuters reported late Tuesday afternoon that there's now some impetus around a proposed one-month ceasefire that would be the first phase of a potentially longer and even perhaps permanent cessation of hostilities. But while this seems more open-ended than the two-month-and-done ceasefire outlined above, the talks are apparently hung up as Hamas is insisting that the path to a permanent ceasefire be explicitly laid out and perhaps somehow guaranteed in advance. The Israeli government is, as you might expect, angling for a more step-by-step approach that could allow it to resume hostilities without appearing to break any commitments. Uh, The Israeli government has decided to send Palestinian tax revenue, which it collects on behalf of the Palestinian Authority, to Norway for safekeeping, I guess. Uh, Back in November, the Knesset decided to freeze the portion of the PA's tax revenue that is earmarked for public sector workers in Gaza. Since then, the PA has been refusing to accept any revenue from the Israelis in protest. The Biden administration has been pressuring Netanyahu to send the revenue to the PA, which ultimately cannot function without it, but it would be politically risky for him to do so uh, right now. So uh, sending the Gaza portion of the revenue to Norway is supposed to be a gesture that gives the PA cover to soften its stance and agree to accept the non-Gaza portion of its tax revenue again. Uh, In Iraq, uh, the U.S. military attacked three sites linked with Iraq's Kata'ib Hezbollah militia on Tuesday in retaliation for Saturday's missile strike on Ain al-Assad Air Base that left several U.S. personnel wounded. At least two people were killed in Tuesday's strikes. 
in Yemen, the U.S.-U.K. bombing campaign, or I guess we could maybe call it a war now, uh, against the Houthi or Ansar Allah rebel group in northern Yemen, has reportedly forced the United Nations to interrupt ongoing salvage work on the FSO Safer, uh, or Safer, sorry. That oil storage vessel was stranded off of Yemen's Red Sea coast in 2015 with a full load of oil on board. Uh, we've covered this in the newsletter after years of effort to salvage it and thus prevent the possibility of a massive oil spill. Uh, the UN finally transferred the oil to another vessel in August, uh, but the rotting ship itself still poses a serious, if lesser, environmental risk. The operation to salvage it was delayed initially by a lack of funding, but now the conflict has put it on hold indefinitely. And an investigation by the BBC and the human rights organization Reprieve concludes that the UAE government ran a targeted killing program in Yemen from at least uh, from 2015, rather, through at least 2018, relying initially on U.S. mercenaries, but later on local killers trained by those mercenaries. The Emiratis murdered at least 160 people in that 2015 to 2018 period, but there are indications that they've continued killing perceived political opponents in Yemen to the present day. Uh, it seems the mercenaries may have been under the impression that they were going after targets linked with al-Qaeda and or Islamic State, but the UAE has in fact been targeting anyone opposed to its Southern Transitional Council proxy force. Moving on to Asia and Pakistan, that government on Tuesday temporarily reopened the Torkham checkpoint along the Afghan-Pakistani border to all truck traffic. Torkham is the largest commercial crossing along that border, but the flow of commerce broke down 10 days ago when Pakistani authorities began enforcing visa restrictions on truckers attempting to cross from Afghanistan. It's apparently decided to stop doing that, but only temporarily. The restrictions will go back into effect on March 31st. Uh, in India, throngs of worshippers visited a newly opened temple to the Hindu deity Lord Ram in the Indian city of Ayodhya on Tuesday. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi formally opened the site on Monday in a combination of religious ceremony political ra- slash political rally uh, meant to excite his Hindu nationalist base. The temple is somewhat controversial in that it sits on the site once occupied by a 16th century mosque that was destroyed by a Hindu mob in 1992. The mob in turn insisted that Muslims had purposely built the mosque on the site of Lord Ram's birth in an insult to Hindus. The Indian Supreme Court ruled in 2019 that the site should be converted into a temple, providing another plot of land for a new mosque to replace the previous one in the perhaps unlikely event it's ever actually built. In North Korea, the North Korean government has demolished a huge arch in Pyongyang that was built in 2000 and intended to represent hopes for Korean unity. Its destruction symbolizes North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's turn away from reunification as a national goal and instead uh, the adoption of a policy of permanent, or at least until he changes his mind, hostility towards South Korea. And the South Korean military reported Wednesday morning that North Korea had fired multiple cruise missiles off of its eastern coast. I haven't seen any detail beyond that, but there may be more in tomorrow's newsletter. On to Africa and Somalia, where U.S. Africa Command announced on Tuesday that it killed three Al-Shabaab fighters in airstrikes over the weekend that were conducted at the request of the Somali government. Circumstances are unclear, but Somali authorities may ask the U.S. to carry out attacks like this if, say, their security forces are engaged in battle with Al-Shabaab fighters. Uh, As ever, the U.S. military insists that no civilians were harmed in the attack. 
Uh, and continuing a thread from earlier in this newsletter with Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud traveling to Doha on Tuesday to enlist Qatari support for his brewing conflict with Ethiopia. World Politics Review's Jonathan Fenton Harvey notes the UAE's growing role in fostering trouble in East Africa. Uh, and I'll read you a bit of his piece. The latest twist in the bilateral relationship came in the form of Addis Ababa's historic agreement with Somaliland for coastal access to the Gulf of Aden. Uh, Aden. This is the bilateral Somali-Ethiopian relationship, which is a long-standing goal for landlocked Ethiopia. The initial agreement outlined in a memorandum of understanding on January 1st grants Ethiopia the use of 12 miles of Somali Somaliland's coast for a period of 50 years, as well as use of Somaliland's Berbera port. In return, Ethiopia agreed to examine the possibility of extending diplomatic recognition to Somaliland, a breakaway region of Somalia that has declared its independence but remains unrecognized. Ethiopia's ties with Somaliland, largely facilitated by the UAE, aren't a new development. Indeed, in 2018, DP World and Ethiopia acquired 52% and 19% stakes, respectively, in a deal to build a 155-mile highway from Berbera to the Ethiopian border, and both have cooperated on its development. The two also signed a memorandum of understanding in 2021 to develop the Ethiopian side of the Berbera Highway into a key trade and logistics corridor, even as the Emiratis deepened their investment in Berbera's port. There's been wide suspicion, especially within Somalia, that the UAE played a role in sponsoring the latest coastal access deal, at the very least, given its past role in facilitating ties between Ethiopia and Somaliland. The UAE likely tacitly approved it, enabling the deal to come to fruition. Uh, this is me again, of course, the Emiratis and uh, the piece goes into this with the Emiratis are, of course, already under fire for allegedly or uh, I guess most likely uh, providing material support to Sudan's Rapid Support Forces group. So their regional footprint is growing uh, and I would say not in a terribly positive way. Meanwhile, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, authorities believe that a Mobondo militia was responsible for an attack on a village in the western DRC's Mayandombe province overnight that left at least 11 people dead. Mobondo fighters are part of the Yaka community, which has been engaged in a low-level war uh, with the rival Teke community rooted in competing land claims along the Congo River since at least uh, 2022. Uh, and in the eastern DRC's North Kivu province, meanwhile, the Congolese military shelled a town controlled by the rebel M23 militia on Monday, killing one child and wounding a pregnant woman. UN peacekeepers are accusing the rebels of using town residents as human shields by preventing them from fleeing. Uh, on to Europe and Ukraine, a major barrage of Russian Russian missiles struck targets across Ukraine on Tuesday, including in, in the cities of Kiev and Kharkiv, uh, killing at least 18 people in total. Ukrainian air defenses reportedly intercepted 22 of 44 projectiles, mostly around Kiev. Uh, but Russia is clearly relying on high volume attacks like this to overwhelm Ukrainian air defense systems that are running out of ammunition. And NATO announced on Tuesday that it has closed a $1.2 billion deal to buy 220,000 rounds of 155mm artillery shells from two contractors, one French and the other German. The purchase is intended both to help members replenish their own stockpiles and to continue funneling shells to Ukraine, given the importance that artillery is continuing to play in that conflict. 
In Sweden, uh, at long last, I guess, the Turkish parliament voted on Tuesday to ratify Sweden's accession to NATO. There are some procedural steps that still have to take place to make it official, but once that's done, Hungary will be the only NATO member that has not yet agreed to let Sweden join the club. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban on Tuesday invited his Swedish counterpart, Ulf Kristersson, to Budapest to discuss the matter. It's unclear if Kristersson plans to do so. During Finland's accession process, the Hungarian government also held out alongside Turkey. Uh, but when uh, it became clear that Turkey was moving toward ratification, Hungary actually did so first. It's unclear whether Orban is prepared to continue holding out on Sweden. The ratification also probably clears the way for the U.S. government to approve a sale of modernized F-16s and F-16 modernization kits to Turkey. In recent months, an obvious quid pro quo has emerged with respect to those issues, though the Biden administration has never explicitly linked the two and may try to hold off the F-16 sale long enough to maintain the pretense that they are separate matters. And in the Americas, in Haiti, gang violence killed 4,789 people in that country last year, according to a U.N. report released on Tuesday. That is a 110% increase over 2022. And announcing the report, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres also noted that gang violence appears to be spreading outside of Haitian cities into the countryside. This may be partly because some Haitian police are opting, in the face of this violence and without a legitimate government behind them, to find other safer types of employment, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, some 1,600 of them apparently left the National Police Force in 2023. And in the United States, finally, uh, Stephen Wertheim, Wertheim at The Atlantic argues that Joe Biden's fixation on, quote unquote, defending democracy is having the opposite of its presumably intended effect. And I'll read you the introduction to his piece. Uh, quote, we've got to prove democracy works, end quote, Joe Biden declared in his first press conference as president. He has dedicated his administration to this task. Biden took office weeks after his predecessor tried to overturn an election and sparked an insurrection. The violent transition of power confirmed America's spot in the quote-unquote democratic recession that has beset dozens of countries since the mid-2000s. Several times since, Biden has remarked that future generations will see that the global contest between democracy and autocracy was in no small part decided during his presidency. Democracies, as he told world leaders at the inaugural Summit for Democracy, which he convened in December 2021, must show that that they, quote, can deliver for people on issues that matter most to them, end quote. Yet what matters most to the American people? Not the fortunes of democracy overseas. During the same nearly two decades in which democracy has declined globally, the public has turned against attempts to remake other countries in America's image, especially through military intervention and nation building. In surveys, Americans rank democracy promotion among their lowest foreign policy priorities. Biden may think he's unifying the country by defending distant democracies, but his democracy-first framing is divisive and may be making overseas conflicts worse. Uh, other than that, though, it's going great, uh, as, as I'm sure you know. Uh, that's it for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for reading in or listening to the newsletter, and especially to those of you who are Foreign Exchange subscribers and make this newsletter possible. Until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.